Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady and I'm here with the founder and host, Lou Weiss. And joining us today is Dr. Chris Keel, who we have been having some chuckles with. Chris is a pretty humorous economist, so he adds some liberty to a heavy subject. Chris, thanks for joining us. You're so welcome. So we could tackle any number of things, but probably the first one we should tackle is the banking situation yes, is yes. as dire as everyone thinks. Yeah, it really is not as dire as everyone thinks. It's not a repeat of what we went through in 2007, 2008. Yes. But it is a signal of, of change because for the last 10 years, we've had very, very low interest rates. And that has allowed banks to invest heavily in treasuries because they're very secure It's kind of the thing that you put your money in when you want a lot of security. However, as the rates come up, the yields on those treasuries change. And what got Silicon Valley Bank in trouble, understand that this is a bank that was high risk to begin with because it's specialized in startups. It's specialized in tech startups. So it's already in a very high risk loan environment. It tried to protect itself by putting a lot of its money in bonds. Well, when the bonds became risky, now it's the perfect storm because you have risky clients, risky loans, risky backing with your bonds, and it caught up with them. What's worrying the whole banking system is that all the banks put a lot of money in bonds. And whether it's Silicon Bank or Wells Fargo or Citibank or Bank of America, they have bought a lot of bonds. And if they're selling the bonds they have now to buy new ones, as they do, they're selling at a discount to buy a more expensive bond. And that puts them in more financial distress than they would like to be. None of them are in real distress. None of them are looking like they looked back in 2007, 2008, that was when people were just going nuts over house loans and lending to people that had no credit. It's just ridiculous. That's not what's happening now. But a little bit of this is gamesmanship on the part of the banks. The banks are basically looking at the Fed saying, look, when you raise rates, you are affecting our bond portfolios. That is weakening us. Please don't do any more. And the Fed's response in the last couple of days has been, well, we see what you're saying. We still need to slow the economy down, but we understand that we may be coming to a point where we do more damage than good. So that's the conversation that's happening now, where the banks and other institutions are saying, you've done enough. You don't need to raise rates anymore. And the Fed is saying, well... Yeah, we see that. However, the unemployment rate is still low. We're still growing. Consumers are still spending. So maybe we raise them a little bit. (laughs) So you've got these two sides going, I'm almost done, but not quite. Maybe sort of, kind of, maybe. And the rest of us are sitting around going, would you guys make up your mind and decide what you're going to do? I think that they raise rates by half a point at their next meeting. But at the very same time, it would not surprise me if they gave a really long list of reasons that they're not going to do it again. So it's kind of waiting on that. 
may have something to do with the loss of two million jobs. Well, it's true, but what they have been wanting to do is see those two million jobs lost. I mean, one of the ways that the Fed decides that it's done enough to break the economy is to see the unemployment rate go up. And it's basically raising rates as a blunt instrument. I mean, what they're trying to do is keep people from spending money. And one of the things that they've discovered is that people who don't have a job don't spend much money. And so the Fed is like, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but we're trying to get people fired. We are trying to get businesses to quit borrowing. We are trying to dry up the money supply. The problem is that there's an awful lot of alternatives to banks. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked much about in the media or anywhere else is the shadow banking system. And people look at that like it's sinister, you know, shadow banking. What it boils down to is institutions that have money that are not controlled by the Fed, insurance companies, venture funds. The venture funds have an incredible amount of money right now because our savings rate skyrocketed in 2020. And a lot of people with money put it into venture funds. So a company that doesn't get satisfaction from its bank turns to a venture fund and a venture fund says, oh, by all means, we are mandated to spend this money. We can't hold on to it. So the Fed is like, well, we can control banks, can't control them. So it's, it's <clears throat> the unfortunate thing is the Fed really does want pain. They want enough pain to slow the economy down. The good news kind of is that we're not going to be experiencing the pain that Paul Volcker brought in the 1980s. <laughs> it's like, I want the entire country out of work. <laughs> it's just, that'll slow down inflation. <laughs> My God, yeah, nothing like three years of recession. That'll do the trick. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. It worked like a charm. I mean, <laughs> inflation was killed. We had recession for three years, and Paul Volcker said, told you. <laughs> what i said i was going to do so, <laughs> so maybe so, you need to bring him back yeah you know <laughs> it, 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 or a volker-esque we don't have any of those anymore you know yeah. our ours are being a little less a little less Volker. close to the vest yes <laughs> not quite so machiavellian yeah exactly <laughs> That's so, back in the days when central bankers were central bankers, by God. You know, so. yeah. Chris, manufacturing, and we're looking at the ACES report, and so far, manufacturing is, you know, they're manufacturing. They're yeah. nobody really crippled, uh, and there don't seem to be the headwinds that uh, would scare them out of work. Yeah, it's really interesting. The last few months, I've been speaking to a lot of manufacturing groups, and they've all had kind of the same reaction. They've all said, look, we see the problems, we see inflation, we see threats of recession, but our business is doing pretty well. And it depends on the sector they're in. We've seen a lot more growth in aerospace, automotive, um, machinery in general has been down, but ag machinery has been up of late. One of the more interesting surveys that I ran across was of C-suite officials asking them what they think about what's going on in the economy. Generally speaking, they were kind of neutral on global, national, local economy. But when it came to their own industry and their own company, 
76% were confident in their own industry, 78% were confident in their own business. And they said, look, we see the problem, but it's not affecting us. You know, we're still growing very well. I mean, I'm at a meeting today of people that heat treat metal. And and most of them are saying, hey, whether it's aerospace, automotive, appliances, you name it, we're all seeing growth. Our biggest problems are problems of growth. We're having problems finding people. We're having problems finding the supply that we need. They have this, and this is universal across the country, almost every country has a surplus of some inventory and a shortage of others. And so they're sitting on this inventory they don't know what to do with because they're lacking the other inventory that they need to finish a project. And it's like the automotive sector right now. They either have too much or too little. <laughs> it's beginning to sound like a Cinderella thing. You know, the porridge is too hot. No, it's too cold. And it's like, well, well being kind of quit making porridge. Being that you're you're the economist and you know how to play with numbers, <clears throat> the U.S. government now is looking to increase the uh, tariff mm -hmm. on aluminum coming right. in from Russia by 200%. Yes. So they increase the aluminum by 200%. There's 15% of the aluminum that we use in this country, in our aerospace industry, comes from Russia. Exactly. So a 200% tariff on 15% of the supply comes to what number? Well, I'm not going to give you specifics, but what I am going to point out is that even if you're not <clears throat> subject to that sanction, everybody else's aluminum prices go up too, because right. you're watching a significant part. We saw it earlier last year with the impact on oil and gas, food, all these different things. And we'll see the same pattern that we saw with oil and gas. The other suppliers will move in to make up the difference between what's being produced now and what Russia is producing. But it will take a few months, and they'll take advantage of the fact that the prices are going to be more, um, how shall we put this, more exciting uh, for them. And then we're going to have to look at where else we get aluminum. And... Unfortunately, in a lot of our commodities, we're also dealing with instability in other parts of the world. I mean, there's no government to speak of in Peru right now, and Peru is a producer of copper and aluminum bauxite, and we have instability in places that we rely on for lithium. And we have, so all of these global commodity shifts end up reverberating through the entire industry. We've learned that, particularly with things like sanctions, if 15% of the aluminum comes from Russia, we'll still be getting it, but it's going to be coming through third parties. It's going to be amazing how quickly Kazakhstan <laughs> increases their aluminum production. Oh, we had it all along. We just weren't telling anybody. It's like, it just came across the border. It's like, yeah, we'll prove it. <laughs> so, yeah, surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, so all of a sudden, and it's the same thing. It's like the Russians have actually produced and sold more oil since the sanctions started than they did before. But now it's it's coming indirectly. It's like suddenly 
who knew that Uzbekistan produced oil? <laughs> so doesn't all of this just add to the inflation? It does. And the biggest driver for inflation, the commodity prices have tended to to relax a little bit because we know the pattern. As soon as prices go up, whether it's for oil or gas or aluminum or copper or anything else, all of those marginal players start to produce because the money is there. And inevitably, they overproduce because they're all trying to get in on that, on that increase. So we go from having a shortage to having a surplus. What's driving inflation now is wages. And they don't go down. Commodities go up and down. Looks like an EKG whenever you look at their pricing. But labor goes up and stays up. And you can't change it. Once you've given somebody a raise, you can't come back and say, surprise, things are better now. We're cutting your salary. <clears throat> well, they don't. And the only way that you see wages come down is when there is large amounts of unemployment. So that's back to what the Fed's trying to do. They're sort of like, you know, you want the wages to come down, fire a lot of people. Because what you can then do is fire the people that you're paying the most and hire new people who you don't pay as much. Unless you're in a sector like manufacturing where it's like, I can't fire the experienced people because they're the only people who know how to do this job. And if you want me to turn around and hire a newbie, well, these people don't even understand how to turn on a light, uh, much less run a machine. I mean, so part of the reason we haven't seen the big layoffs is manufacturers are afraid to lay off their workforce because they know it's going to be so hard to get them back. It's hard to get them now in the first place exactly first place. so they spent all this time recruiting somebody they're not about to lose them now so even if they've had a slowdown they're still hanging on to that workforce right right chris i have been watching canada which seemed to recover slower than we did uh, not as well as we did and seems to be slowing faster than we are is that accurate of what's going on it's fairly accurate canada is a commodity-based country and they're very subject to the whims of commodities so in the beginning of last year they were doing quite well because the gas pricing and oil pricing was very high but as that has come down it has affected their gdp so per barrel prices in the 70s doesn't do canada any favors they have also food commodities to sell that's been very volatile their manufacturing sector is highly tied to the united states and as the struggles in the u.s have taken place there's sort of been attention to the u.s side of things and not as much attention to what's happening in canada the other challenge for Canada is that all of the problems that we deal with in terms of labor supply and all the rest is just magnified in a country that only has 20 million people to start with. And so Canada's lightly populated territory is a challenge and transportation becomes an issue. Uh, anybody who's done business with Canada, it's really almost two halves. Western doesn't do much with Eastern because there's just vast distances in between so they tend to stay focused in their own area <laughs> energy prices have been a challenge and 
it isn't that it's sent Canada into a recession. It's just made them slower. Mexico, on the other hand, has seen much faster growth because they're they're taking over where China left off as companies move out of China and look for other areas that are conducive to production. They still want lower wages. They still want lower taxes. They still want lower regulation. And it's like, oh, I can get all three of those in Mexico. Well, that brings Mexico into the into the discussion. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure. They seem to be recovering a little bit, but now they're faced with us maybe not doing as well. How are they going to fare? Yeah, they're very tied to us, obviously. But if you look at the latest Purchasing Managers Index, Mexico is in the growth category. They're above 50. And they have been there for several months. Um, so we've seen a lot of foreign direct investment into Mexico. It's record numbers. They've never seen this much FDI in a single year in their history. And it's mostly new investment. Almost half of it is new investment. So there is a lot of expansion. It is almost exclusively in northern Mexico. So it's going to be the industrial towns, Satillo, Cretro, San Luis Potosi, Monterey. And <clears throat> Interestingly enough, it's led to the fewest Mexican migrants coming into the U.S. legally or illegally in well over a decade. Even though the numbers of people coming across the border have increased, they're not Mexican. They're coming from Central America, Latin America. The Mexicans are literally hurting the North, saying, we don't know what to do with the Guatemalans, Hondurans. Nicaraguans, Venezuelans either. And they're sort of like, we have jobs for our own people. We don't have jobs for them. And that's that's becoming a new immigration challenge. In your report, the ASIS, the Armada Strategic Intelligence Systems Report. Yes, and I know that's an oxymoron, but yes. Yes, and, and not only that, it's hard to say and it's hard to remember. We just call it, you know, just remember as is. As <laughs> is. I like it. There I like it. So you in your machinery forecast, so the outlook is weak. Right. But yet the machine tool order index mm -hmm. has gone up which usually predicts uh, six to nine months ahead of what's coming. So we have machinery builders weakening, but yet the machine tool order is looking good and rising and giving us a look that down, down the road that things are going to be pretty good. Yep. So how does this work? Well, the latest iteration of our machinery forecast showed a pretty sharp improvement. And one of the things that was kind of driving that was people's reaction to capacity utilization. We had several months in a row where our utilization numbers have been at least at 80 or very close to 80, which is kind of in the normal range. And that always has been what drives machinery purchasing, is that when companies are under 80 they have slack already. They don't need to buy any more machinery. They don't even really need to hire anybody because they already have slack. When they hit 85% utilization, that's when they start 
purchasing new machines because now they're running into bottlenecks and the like. So we're not at that stage, but we're beginning to get into the 80s where there's some rationale for companies to to invest. Machineries tend to be very volatile because it's not something you buy every year. And so you get these peaks where you get a lot of machinery acquisition and then people basically they're done for a while until they need to upgrade. And we're kind of coming to the point now where there's maybe another surge close within a year or a year and a half because people didn't buy much during 2021 and started to in 2022. The time for buying machines has begun to, the timeline has shortened because the machines are increasingly sophisticated and companies are using them to substitute for workers. Now it's become a lot more common to say, well, we used to do this with labor. Um, now we're bringing in robotics and machinery to handle what people used to do. The fastest growing sector of machine acquisition is material handling where companies are like yeah we used to have guys on forklifts and now it's like no we've got to we can't find forklift drivers anymore so we're doing this in a more automated way mm -hmm. chris i wish we had time to go through each of the sectors in the asus report <laughs> i encourage people to go to armada-intel.com to get their hands on the asus report you get two months free, it's excellent information. You can also get the flagship report. So Chris, thanks for being with us again. Thank you, I appreciate it. And good luck to all that you were out there fighting the weirdness of banks. <laughs> so. No doubt. Thanks everyone for being with us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And let us not forget, we are planning to go AM FM radio syndication. Uh, we're at the very beginning stages of it. We've gotten our first report, uh, reports regarding the marketing of same, and uh, it's looking very encouraging. So you're going to wind up seeing us in the radio. So very good, which is challenging in and of itself. It's like yeah, we, have, we have plenty of time. <laughs> we have plenty of time. See, seeing you on the radio, that that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> you'll, you'll be there. You'll be there. Very good. Okay. Uh, we will we'll talk to you uh, next month. Very good. Take care. Bye bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.